Hello and welcome. My name is Brent Weaver and this is the Digital Agency Show. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with today's top agencies and entrepreneurs. I am really glad you're here. And once again, it's time to transform your business mindset. Hey there. What's up, digital agency owners, podcast listeners? So excited for you guys to be here with us today. We have another great program in store for you. Good friend of mine, Joe Meese, who's a Denver-based designer and developer, uh, is going to be joining us today. And Joe has been a player in the Denver creative scene for 20 years. I say Denver. I mean, he's got he's done work for clients like Jax Links, Audi, uh, USA, Victoria's Secret, Jimmy John's, some really awesome brands. And Joe's definitely best known for his Flash and Action Script worked for a lot of different agencies. And he actually was also one of the original co-founders of Xylem Interactive. Now, earlier, uh, if you haven't checked out one of our podcast episodes, uh, Phil Lockwood, who was the founder of Creation Chamber, that company actually merged with Xylem. So you're going to hear some names of companies and, and maybe some of the people today uh, I'm sure Joe's going to reference. Um, they're all kind of interlaced and crossed over. So you're going to get a different side of that story today. And uh, now that company, uh, Xylem, is actually now called Lee Reedy Xylem Digital. It's uh, LRXD. But Joe is actually part of that company founding back in 2000, so way back when. Now, outside of digital work and design work, Joe. Uh, has actually started doing some real estate investing. So he spent the last 10 years kind of diversifying his portfolio of where he gets his money from uh, outside of just his flash and design work, which of course now he's not doing as much flash work, I assume, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But he's doing some real estate stuff outside of that. So I think that's a really interesting part of Joe's story, and we'll be talking about that as well. So Joe also has a wife, two daughters, and three dogs. We're really excited to have Joe Meese on our program today. Well, Joe, it's good to have you on the Digital Agency Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what originally got you into the digital space to begin with? Why did you get involved and, and make this your career? I guess growing up, I always had um, a thing for art and design and illustration. I assume that in some capacity, that would be you know, where I would land in terms of career. And then... In 1998, a colleague of mine introduced me to a tool called Macromedia Flash. And Flash was at version 3.0 at the time. It was very simple, not very well known, but you could do some pretty um, cool at the time animations, vector style animations. And I just thought it was a a really... um, exciting tool that I could use. Um, I was still in college at the time, but I dove in, uh, started tinkering with it and, you know, tried to figure out ways that I could, you know, monetize my skill set within Flash. How long did it take you from learning Flash till you were able to make money doing it and, and follow that up maybe with who your first client or project was? I spent probably a good six to nine months you know, making little animations here or there, playing with text effects. Um, and again, there wasn't too much you could do in, in Flash 3. There was no action script language at the time. It was basically, you know, go to and play events, go to and stop, um, 
click interactions, et cetera. So, you know, there wasn't a great deal you could do, but in, I think, I believe it was the summer of 99, a small web shop in Fort Collins, I'm trying to think of the name, I, it's slipping my mind, but anyhow, they came to me and, you know, wanted to see if they could create a website for them in Flash, you know, just to kind of have the, the so-called skip intro and kind of the glitzy effects and, um, you know, highly animated and something that, you know, would be, I guess, viral at the time. I feel like those are the years where, like the early days of Flash before SEO became like a really big deal and some other factors with mobile and stuff. But those early days of Flash, I, f- I feel like whenever I'd go to a website, you'd have like the really cool Flash intros and you'd have really cool Flash animations. And, and Flash was kind of like the thing, you know, it was a, it was a big deal uh, in the early days of the web. It definitely was. And I think a lot of it was, let's see what we can do, not necessarily what we should do. And in that, there was a lot of, I guess, time-wasting effects. Like you said, I mean, they're actually called skip intros because they got to the point where it was really just wasting time and people searched for the button that said skip intro. So that kind of you know gives you a sense of, of what that was. But it, there was nothing like it at the time. And you know what you could do with HTML in comparison with you know tables and table rows, it was... It was definitely, um, you know, night and day in terms of um, engaging visual content. So you get this gig with an agency to build their their skip intro or their website in Flash. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you remember how much that gig was or was it meaningful to you? Or, or was this just your first of many jobs and, and it was all part of the plan? Or were you actually kind of surprised that somebody paid you to do some of this work? Yeah, I wasn't really surprised. I mean, I, I could tell that there was a lot of, you know, desire and there were some big agencies around the nation that were doing similar type stuff um, better than I could do at the time. So, you know, people were striving for that. Some of the names were like um, Dennis Interactive was doing some pretty cool stuff. Uh, Firstborn Multimedia, which I believe is still in business out of New York City. Uh, so there was definitely a trend towards the technology. Um, so, you know, having an opportunity to kind of dip my toe and, you know, really try to create something, uh, was definitely exciting. Um, in terms of how much they paid me, I think it was maybe a thousand, twelve fifty something, you know, nothing astronomical, but again, I was, um, you know, in college thinking about dropping out and it was an opportunity to, you know, create something for somebody else and make money doing it. You said you were thinking about dropping out. Is that ultimately what happened? It is ultimately what happened. Um, I completed three semesters in um, up at Colorado State University. And a good friend of mine, um, someone you may actually know, uh, James Lindenbaum, he was at Boston University also thinking of dropping out just because, you know, the formal education wasn't really working for, you know, someone like him. Um, so he had, you know, a, a sizable amount of money um, set aside, and he was like, "Let's start a company focused on flash animation, flash content, flash websites." And I, at the time, I was like, "That sounds cool. This, you know, because this is what I enjoy doing." And, um, you know, let's take the opportunity, see if it pans out, and worst case, I can always go back to college. 
So you guys decided to start this company. Was this Xylem? No, this was prior to Xylem. This this was a company that we ended up calling Fuel Brothers. Um, I wasn't a partner, um, but the concept of the company was effectively built around what I would be able to do with this flash technology. Wow. So really early stage internet, taking advantage of flash as a platform uh, to, to build these sites or animations for companies. Was that when you kind of realized that this could be a full-time thing and it's time to, to leave school? I feel like I had the same moment for me. It was really more towards 2005 and I'd, I'd gone to school a little bit further, but uh, was that kind of the big motivator for you to leave school and go out on your own? I would say so. Um, you know, to I didn't know what other opportunities were going to come along and I thought to myself, you know, I may very well have this not work out and come back to college, but I, I didn't want to live with the thought of regretting passing up on an opportunity to, you know, strike while the iron was hot. So you ended up working with this agency or at what point did you decide to start your own business around this, uh, this service? So it was, it was pretty much James and I at the beginning and we built a team um, of other, you know, designers, animators, salespeople, et cetera. A lot of very talented people. That's actually where I ended up meeting uh, Jerry, Jeremy Irwin, Andy Titus, and Jim Darling, who ended up being my partners uh, when we founded Xylem Interactive in 2000. So what was the, the, the basis of Xylem? Was it just more of the same and now you had a, a piece of ownership or what made you want to actually go into business and, and start a digital agency, which I assume you had very little experience running a digital agency and, and probably at that time very few people did. Uh, definitely the case. Um, I, what happened with Fuel Brothers is, you know, it was at the time of, you know, the dot-com boom. Everyone was, you know, going crazy with elaborate and expensive office spaces um, and just a lot of overhead and bloat. And I started to see the writing on the wall that what we were doing at Fuel Brothers, you know, there was probably three or four people that were actually billable and the rest of the team was, you know, ancillary or what you might, what you might call like a, an attempt to fulfill what the idea of an agency at that time was supposed to be. Um, so, you know, I started to panic in a, in a way, you know, I was, I was making a decent salary at the time. It was made, I think 42,000 a year. But again, as someone dropped, dropping out of college, um, you know, living with my dad, it was, it was something to be excited about. Yeah. But, if you have, if you have no expenses or, or very few expenses, if you're living at home still or whatever, then pretty much. that's a pretty good, pretty good deal for one dude. Yeah, definitely. I mean, cause my previous job, I was working part-time at fast signs making eight twenty five an hour. But the problem was, I, I was like, I don't know. I mean, I can see what's going on. We're, we're not able to sustain the team that we have. So do we, you know, cut back on the team? Do we, you know, how do we make this work? There was a little bit of a rift between uh, James and I at the time because, you know, A, this was his company. He had a vision for, you know, what he wanted to do. But I was starting to lose faith in not the technology, but what the what Fuel Brothers had become. Are they still so, around or did that? Um, Fuel Brothers does still exist. Um, 
but not real. I wouldn't really say they're a player. And it's it's actually not anything that James is involved in. I don't. I'm not sure if you made the connection, but James Lindenbaum, after Fuel Brothers moved to San Francisco, founded a company called Heroku, which he then, you know, grew to what it was and sold it to Salesforce in 2012. Wow. Okay. Got it. So um, at the time, you know, I felt really bad that it didn't, you know, work out for him or me, and you know, it was it was a tough time. It definitely weighed on our friendship. But in the long term, um, if that, you know, whatever he learned from that, that he was able to take and, you know, build Heroku, um, I think he ended up okay. I would, I would say so. We're probably not worried about him right now. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, four partners deciding to start an agency is a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So you decide to start this new agency with those folks. What, uh, what was that like? So... We were super excited. Again, we wanted to keep it as you know, lightweight as possible. Um, so it was myself, uh, Andy Titus, and Jim Darling, who were all creatives, and then Jeremy Irwin, who was kind of the um, you know, operations slash sales guy for the team. Uh, and we ran the business out of the basement of the house that Jeremy was renting at the time. So we were able to keep things you know, super light, brought in, you know, a good amount of work. Everyone was happy doing, you know, doing our thing um, and, you know, establishing ourselves in the the Denver community. Who were some of your early clients? We had a few different agencies we were doing some work for. Um, you know, we ended up doing a couple projects for Array Biopharma. Uh, we did some work for a company called Exhibit Logistics, who does like trade show booth design. The big win came when... Um, we signed on with Chipotle to redo their website. I remember looking at that work. I would just, of course, stock all the other Denver agencies and see what everybody else was doing. And I feel like you guys really had a niche with some of those, those big brands and some of that early flash work, I feel like really did set a bar. I mean, if you were in, into flash or into eye catching work, I mean, it was it was some really cool stuff. I just remember, like, I can't remember the the one of the flash heads. I don't know if it was the first one you guys did, but it just had like the big burrito like spinning and like landing on the page and kind of shaking the browser window or something like that. There was you, you definitely right. went all out with some of those flash sites. It was done really well, and, and you know, to be honest, like that project, a lot of it kind of went underway as I personally was making my exit from Xylem. One of the, you know, many lessons I've learned along the way is that partnerships are tough. You know, when you've got four equal partners, the odds of four people equally sharing the workload is pretty much slim to none. And again, you know, being young kids, all of us in our early 20s, I think Jeremy was 25 at the time. So he was kind of the, um, the senior citizen of the group. But, you know, none of us knew what we were doing. We just knew we wanted to, you know, create good work and to try to make it fly. But again, you know, at the time when I was making my exit, I was 21 years old and I was starting to think about, okay, you know, I'd like to be able to buy a house soon and, you know, have some sort of, you know, steady income because that was one thing we definitely didn't have. You know, we'd, we'd have a big project, we'd get a payday, you know, it's kind of definitely a roller coaster ride in that regard. I think you're describing a much more responsible 21 year old than I, I was. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I guess in some ways that I've always been a little bit pragmatic in in that regard. Um, so, you know, I wanted to try to, you know, 
A, continue to learn as much as I could about web development, digital content, programming, et cetera, while also having something, you know, that I could rely on. You know, I didn't want to live, you know, I didn't want to live with my dad anymore. Um, you know, I wanted to kind of establish my own way and uh, start thinking, you know, towards the future. Was it a peaceful exit from that uh, partnership or was it uh, challenging? For the most part, it was, you know, again, like there wasn't really any value that could be assigned to the company at the time. So it's not like, oh, well, we have to, you know, pay Joe out this or, um, you know, settle in this regard. So it was a, a relatively clean break. I think, you know, they were bummed to see me want to leave and not really, you know, continue on the path with them. And it was nothing personal against any of those guys. It was just something I needed to do for myself. But I still have, you know, great relationship um, with all three of them. So. so you decide to go out on your own, kind of realize that running in at least that agency wasn't right for you and you wanted to get a house and get a little bit more of a steady income. So how did you make that happen by yourself? So I actually didn't um, go off on my own at that time. I joined another Denver um, agency who was much more focused on the programming side. That agency was called Breckenridge Communications. Before I joined the team, it was really a bunch of um, cool fusion developers, database developers, etc. But, you know, they wanted to bring in a little bit more creativity to uh, their solution offering. So it was, a, it was a good fit at the time. And, you know, working with that team for a couple of years and, you know, working with seasoned programmers, um, I was actually able to, you know, learn a lot about more formal um, programming methodologies, how to approach, you know, larger systems, etc. So how long did you stay with them? Probably about two years, year and a half, two years maybe. Got the steady paycheck, was able to uh, purchase my first house in, in Glendale. And that was in November of 2001. So did that um, and rode that way for a while. Then ended up going back to work for Xylem under Jeremy um, as an employee. Well, to step back for a moment. So Chipotle was really the launch um like the, uh, the springboard for, for Xylem. And after they did that, they basically became the, you know, agency to tackle um, anything to do with, you know, food service. They started working with um, Chili's and Jimmy John's and Jack Link's and all these, you know, big national brands. And Jeremy's like, we've got all this work coming in, but we don't have enough talent to, you know, basically fulfill what we're, you know, what we need to get done. So he made, you know, as much as I liked working at Breckenridge Communications, he made me a, um, a financial offer that, you know, was too hard to refuse. So I went back there for a little bit, um, ended up being a tough situation. I don't know if it was because, um, I was at one point a partner and now I was basically just a staff member. Um, but it, again, it just didn't feel like a good fit and ended up, you know, kind of getting to the point where I was like, I, I can't keep doing this. I got, I've got to, you know, find something else. Um, so ended up bouncing over to another local agency, Creation Chamber, uh, which I think was a much better fit. They were, you know, much more 
organized, had a vision in, in place, and, and I was able to, you know, bring my skill set to the table and um, hit the ground running and, and really enjoyed, you know, working in that environment for about three years. And were you with them? I know we had Phil on uh, our program and he talked about the merger between Creation Chamber and Xylem. So obviously a little, you know, it's it's a small world in terms of, you know, going from company to company and then those companies merged. Were you a part of that when they merged or did you, uh, was that three years done before that all happened? So I left Creation Chamber in July of 2005, uh, which was before the merger. And at that point, it wasn't. I wasn't leaving because I wasn't happy, or I didn't, you know, believe in Creation Chamber or what they were doing. It was just I, I finally felt I was at a point where I had enough connections, enough experience, um, and a, you know, a marketable skill set where I could go off on my own and be, you know, a full-time freelancer. So you kind of played. What I think is so interesting about your story, Joe, is you've really held you know, multiple positions within agencies. You've been very much obviously focused on the creative side of this, but you were a partner at two companies. One of those companies you left, went and worked for somebody else as an employee, and then came back to that first company as an employee, ultimately left because you something just didn't work for you in that kind of coming back as an employee type of situation. Then you went to a different company and that company ended up merging with the same company that you were at before. I feel like you've gotten <laughs> this like like crazy inside scoop or experience from maybe both sides of the table, both being an owner and a partner and also being an employee. Is there anything that you learned through that experience before you went out on your own uh, that you think would be really valuable for people to to hear from? You know, anyone who's ever been a partner would probably tell you this, but when you start a new company, you know, you're so consumed with the excitement over what it is you're setting out to do that you kind of ignore the fact that at some point, one or all of you is going to want to do something different. Someone's not going to be happy. Like at some point, the partnership will probably need to be dissolved. It may be, you know, completely amicable or somebody might be angry. Somebody might feel like they're pulling the lion's share. But if you, you know, if you let the excitement of the partnership consume you without thinking, okay, how are we going to dissolve this when the time comes, whether it's in two years, five years or 10 years, you're going to run into problems. So coming to the table with a partnership and having that conversation on the front end before anybody signs documents or businesses started to say, hey, we're all coming together as a company. We know this is going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be everything that we want. But in case it isn't, here's how we all leave the table. Here's how we exit or walk away together or independently. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's, it's like a marriage. You know, you're, you're joining forces with one or two or three other people. Um, and no one wants to think about the you know, the prenup or the divorce down the road. But in business, you know, it's, you're doing everyone a disservice to not have that conversation. So after you worked with Creation Chamber, was it at that point you then, you go solo after Creation Chamber? Yep. So that was in July of 2005. Um, Went solo as Jomi's Creative. Didn't want to, you know, mess with any, crazy name that I might get bored with in, you know, five years and, and want to change. So I just, you know, kept it simple, used my name, 
because I, you know, I had established that a brand for myself in the Denver community. So I thought that that would work well. And I think one of the most interesting things of, of just watching you as a, as a solo freelancer contractor, kind of independent self agency, if you will, uh, one of the things I've, I've been most interested in how you've approached that is you've really leveraged those agency relationships to create a consistent funnel of work. And I think that yeah. that's something that is not necessarily unique, but you not only, you know, you didn't take it just to start out there. Like you've consistently been a producer for agencies and they've kind of helped you grow your business. What, uh, why did you use that as your model and was it something that you did consciously or did it just kind of happen? I think to some degree I did it consciously. Um, you know, in many ways it was kind of what I knew whether I was on staff at an agency doing the work or as a freelancer doing the same work at the end of the day, you know, I knew that I was not so much managerial material, but more of a, in the trenches, you know, focusing on my craft kind of guy. I did not want to build a big agency. Um, I wanted to basically just do good work, you know, set a good hourly rate that, you know, that was fair, that would keep me busy 30 to 40, sometimes 50 hours a week. And, you know, my approach was, especially given at the time, you know, Flash was near its pinnacle, was if I can be a senior level Flash designer, animator, developer um, for 10 different agencies when they need it, then they don't necessarily have to hire that person full time, pay them a six figure salary um, if they may not have the workload um, to support that role. Hmm. Was that part of your pitch to them or was that just something that you kind of assumed that they understood? Early on, it wasn't so, my, so much a pitch. It was more like a something that I just came to realize. And there were certain companies um, that were doing a ton of flash work and they had people in-house. And basically, I just became that bridge between zero to one flash developers, one to two flash developers, etc. So... If, if an agency had, you know, 30 to 40 hours worth of work for a, a Flash developer and they had that person on staff, at some point as they grew, the amount of work that they needed wouldn't necessarily immediately jump from 40 hours a week to 80 hours a week, but it would just be a gradual progression. So while they were getting going from having, you know, one person to needing two people, I could, I could fill that gap for them without them missing a beat. Hmm. You mentioned a good hourly rate. I know when I've talked to people about subbing for other digital agencies, that becomes their concern. The, they're not going to be able to make a good rate because the agency has to resell or repackage their time or their hours. And I, I never really got the feel from you, and even when we were running our agency and we subbed out a few projects to you, that you were necessarily that that was really a big concern for you? You kind of had your rate and the agency could mark that up however they chose to, whether on a flat rate or a project basis or, you know, charge a higher hourly rate or charge for more hours or whatever. Did you ever have issue with getting a premium rate for your time through this subbing strategy? No, never really ran into any issues. Um, you know, when I first went off on my own, I think just being timid and, you know, not really knowing hey, is there going to be enough demand for what I'm trying to do? I probably set my hourly rate a little bit 
too low to the point where the demand was far exceeding the supply. Um, and I think at the time, uh, in 2005, I, I had set my rate at $65 an hour. And um, very quickly, you know, it was all I was doing. Like, fortunately, I wasn't married, didn't have any kids, didn't, you know, have anything else to do because I was literally working 50 or 60 hours a week based on that, you know, hourly rate threshold. How long did you keep that rate? I think I probably kept it for a year, maybe a little bit less. And then I thought to myself, okay, I can't keep working at this pace. I'm going to burn out. So any new clients that come along, I will give them a $75 an hour rate while still servicing my existing clients at $65 an hour. That way, you know, again, to kind of um, offset the risk factor of saying, oh, well, if I increase my rate to $75, all of a sudden I'm going to get 50% less work. What I'll do is kind of have a rolling strategy to say, okay, I know that this rate will, you know, will keep me busy, but if, if new clients come along that w are willing to pay 75 an hour, I'll, you know, gladly embrace that because it's more. And then once I have enough of those clients, then I'll, I'll tell my, you know, old legacy clients, Hey, here's my new rate. What was the peak for flash? Well, I know that, I mean, a major, major event in the history of flash was I think April of 2010, um, when the first iPad was released and that at that point, you know, there was the announcement that, Oh, flash will not be supported on the iPad. So one could say that, you know, the peak was right up until that point. Uh, but me as a flash developer, um, oddly enough found that the, the peak came shortly after that. Hmm. In terms of your personal demand for those services. Yeah. The, the interesting thing that happened was I was kind of a idiot savant in a way. Like I, I knew flash inside and out, um, anything that could be done with flash, you know, I could find a way to do it, but I wasn't an HTML developer. I wasn't, you know, didn't know anything about databases or PHP or cold fusion or any of that. So I really hung my hat on, you know, what was now Adobe flash and said, Hey, this is it. And I'm just going to, you know, ride this software slash technology into the sunset. So when that happened in 2010, I mean, that was definitely a, um, it was a scary time because, you know, I had just gotten married the year before and my wife and I were under contract on a new house that was going to increase our monthly payment, you know, significantly. Um, and so this all kind of happened at once and I was kind of in panic mode. Hmm. Um, didn't really know. I mean, I, the, the thought that was swirling through my head was, well, my, my career is over, so I've got to figure out, you know, what, how I'm going to make this work. Um, and, you know, I was like, I'm, all I can really do is just keep, you know, taking the work that, that's coming. And what ended up happening was the work just kept coming and it actually started to accelerate. And what I equate that to is the fact that once people heard that, Flash was not going to be supported on the iPad. A lot of what you could say are my competition, other you know freelance developers, um, whether they had other skill sets in you know HTML or whatever it was, they kind of jumped ship and exited the industry. So there was a a shortage of resources, but the decline of Flash 
hadn't really kicked in yet. So almost the demand for flash could have been slowly decreasing or people could have been asking themselves, you know, what's going to happen with this technology? Should we still use it? It's still mostly supported. I remember looking at stuff and, you know, there'd be like stats around, you know, flash is still 90, 99% of browsing people, you know, support flash or, or something like that. But I feel like the demand for it might have slowly started going down, but the supply of, of producers actually sounds like dropped significantly. Like people saw yeah. that headline from Apple and the, the, the fight between Steve Jobs and Adobe or something. I, I just remember like drama and people speculating that that had to do with some early slights and it probably didn't, but uh, I remember the, the headlines. And so people kind of abandoned it from a professional side. From everything I could tell, that that was exactly what happened. But at the time, you know, one of my largest clients um, was Victoria's Secret, and I actually ended up earning them as a client because Andy Titus, who was my original partner in Xylem, he moved out to New York City, kind of worked his way up the creative circles there, and ended up as the um, digital creative director for um, Victoria's Secret Online. So you got to work. You got to animate a bunch of uh, scantily clad women. Is that what I'm hearing from you, Joe? Pretty much. That that was the gig. <laughs> uh, was there any any conflict at home about that? Like, oh, just just looking at some uh, underwear today, honey. One thing I do remember: one of um, my wife's parents' friends, when they we, we were having some conversation out at dinner, they were fairly religious people. Um, and I had mentioned that, you know, I did a lot of work for, you know, Victoria's Secret and she um, somehow equated, you know, Victoria's Secret a- as porn. You know, that was kind of a, an awkward moment, but that always, you know, stuck in my mind as, as something that was odd. But, but yeah, it was, you know, they were a great client. They were, you know, always moving very fast. Um, you know, they're pushing out new products, new lines, new campaigns, you know, left and right. The fact that they were such a big brand, I, I mean, I think they were Fortune 500, if not Fortune 100 under the uh, limited brands umbrella. With that came the fact that they were like, okay, you know, a certain percentage of our users are still on IE8 or whatever it was. They weren't able to basically replicate the type of experiences um, outside of Flash. So the fact that they were such a big company, they were basically able to bankroll both a HTML5 version and a Flash version. And that went on for probably two and a half, three years. I feel like there's so much to learn from that experience. I've been a part of at least one market where there is kind of those headlines of like, you know, and people freak out, communities freak out. And I can only imagine if you're one of the top known people in a technology and everybody's freaking out how easy it could be to kind of freak out and leave too. But there's something to be said about staying the course and that things don't typically happen as fast as maybe we all imagine them to. That's definitely true. Um, you know, that's not why I did it. Like I, um, I just didn't know where else to go. (laughs) So so you're kind of lazy. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Not so much lazy. It was just like, you know, all right, I, I guess I can try to rebrand myself as a WordPress developer. But just the thought of, you know, leaving a arena where, you know, I was, you know, so effective, so 
maybe dominant, if you you know want to use that word, and um, kind of starting from the ground up in a very saturated market, like that was just a tough pill to swallow, um, and not something you know I wanted to do. One of the things that ended up happening, I was like, okay, I don't know what project's going to be my last. So I really buckled down, you know, obviously we just bought the new house, but I was like, okay, how, you know, how can we, um, spend less money or, you know, make, you know, make our savings last a little bit longer? Um, you know, do we have six, nine, 12 months of runway if all of a sudden, um, you know, this work that I've been getting starts to dry up. So with that ended up, you know, being very frugal in a sense, but at the same time, um, my workload was ever increasing. So I was you know, making more money than I had in the past while also not really spending a whole lot of it. But you know, it was, it was what was allowing me to sleep at night. Cause I was like, okay, if, if, if it does come where, you know, the phone stops ringing and a month or two goes by and it really is the end, then I know, okay, I can spend the next six months figuring out where I want to be or what I want to do or learning a new technology and not have to worry about, you know, selling the house. I know you and I talked at some point way back when, when this is going on, I think we went out to lunch and, and you, we were doing a lot of kind of more of that HTML CMS driven website builds. And you, you asked me a lot of questions about that, but I remember at the same time you had kind of said, well, I'm also working on getting more of my assets into to real estate. You were literally like diversifying out of the, the digital space kind of because of this. Tell me a little bit more about that. Um, at the time, I, I had a couple um, residential properties that I owned, one of which you actually had rented from me for, I believe it was a year, maybe a year and a half back when we first met. I knew that real estate was an option, but it was at this point where I was like, okay, can I amplify what I'm doing in the real estate realm to really generate some passive income ongoing that will give me a little bit more flexibility um, in terms of, you know, monthly revenue versus, you know, what I have coming in, what I have going out, et cetera. So in 2013, um, I sold one of the three properties that we had, took the capital from that, invested it in two other smaller properties that could be more profitable um, than the one I had before. And at that point, I really, you know, step back, I was able to step back and say, wow, this is, you know, this is something that makes sense to me. Um, if I can continue to, you know, acquire properties, I can potentially get to a point where I don't have to work as much or maybe even as uh, at all, um, when that day finally comes where, you know, flash kicks the bucket. Has it kicked the bucket yet? It has. Um, <laughs> the, the story has ended. It is, it is no longer with us. Is that yes, kind of... Su- surprisingly, Apple really kicked its butt, but it wasn't the, the death blow until Google basically said, all right, we're not going to support Flash anymore. Was this um, in Chrome, or they at least don't allow it by default? Yeah, what, they, they introduced some maneuver or you know st- strategy to basically say, um, when flash appears, you have to click it before anything happens. So it's kind of like a, a paused video. And at that point, everyone was like, okay, this, this, this'll do, you know, HTML five adoption has come along far enough 
that we can effectively, you know, abandon uh, Flash across the board. And, the, you know, I wouldn't say Flash is completely gone because it is still a viable tool for applications that are running in a controlled environment, such as like a touch screen. Um, but, you know, that's a, a very um, boutique marketplace. So did you end up pivoting your skill set outside of Flash a little bit more organically or is now the real estate thing the main thing? Um, it was kind of organic. So, you know, you could say that there was probably about five years between when Apple said, okay, no Flash on the iPad and then when Chrome said, okay, no Flash in the desktop browser. So during those five years, um, you know, still continued to do a ton of work for Victoria's Secret. There was a lot of other... Um, you know, games and kind of more robust, rich experience that, experiences that were being created in Flash. But um, I noticed one of the areas that was, you know, amplified was in the digital advertising space because Flash was pretty much the go-to technology for creating uh, desktop banner ads. And the protocol with banners is, you know, you create an animated version and you create a static backup. And that static backup will appear if somebody has Flash disabled or they're viewing it on a device that doesn't support Flash, such as a tablet or an iPad. That's where banners, or where Flash is being used a lot, was banners, and so you yep. started really spending a lot more time on the banner side of the business, and obviously banners aren't really using Flash anymore. They're more using HTML5, so you're now doing that? Yeah, so I would say, you know, probably in maybe as early as 2011, I started to get in a couple requests for banner ads, um, just because I was a Flash developer that knew. So they're like, hey, do you want to do these banner ads? And I was basically taking any and all Flash work that would come my way. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure. You know, So started doing that, and it, it escalated in kind of tandem as the other more robust applications and games um, were on the decline. So by the time 2014, 2015 rolled around, all the work I was doing was pretty much flash banner ads. And that was for, you know, it was for the same clients, the same agency clients I'd been working with in the past. So it was a pretty natural transition. Um, but then in, what was it, September of 2015, that's pretty much when the there was like a forced shift away from flash towards HTML5. At the end of the day, you know, people still needed banner ads and I had established a uh, reputation as someone who could create those. So people came to me to either refactor their old Flash banner ads into HTML5 or create new campaigns, again, and you know, using HTML, CSS, JavaScript, etc. Huh. So this, this uh, kind of end game for you never fully transpired. I mean, obviously for Flash it did, but for you as a, as a solopreneur, you were able to continue chugging along just as usual. Most of your strategy with subbing from agencies still held up. They were still demanding the same, pretty much the end result, a banner right. uh, or, or a site or something like that. And you were able to, I mean, it sounds like almost not even miss a beat on it. Like it didn't really impact you. I mean, maybe it has. Has it impacted your, your bottom line? Not really. Um, you know, it's definitely been a, a, a shift. And I, But I would say all things considered, like I probably couldn't have asked for a better result. You know, as I had mentioned earlier, I was, you know, very concerned about, you know, leaving an arena where I could, you know, where I was considered 
you know, one of the, the top tier developers and having to, you know, reinvent myself as, you know, someone just getting started um, in a saturated marketplace, whether it was, you know, Business Catalyst or WordPress or, you know, any other technology out there. But the nice thing with, you know, banner ads was, A, there was, there's a ton of demand for it. Not a lot of people that either want to do it or are, you know, promoting themselves as people that can do it. But it allowed me to still focus on um, animation and storytelling, which, you know, syntax aside was a, you know, a skill set that, that I had established over the past two decades. So even though the underlying technology changed a little bit, most of the work, the strategy, the vision for the projects was very, very similar. It was. What's exciting you about your business today and, and where do you think you're headed? You know, I mean, as a 37-year-old who's married with kids, um, to be very focused in kind of a, a niche marketplace, um, I would say that's honestly exciting because it's predictable. Uh, it's something I know, something you know where I'm established. And I'm just kind of at that point in my life where I want to do good work, but I'm perfectly happy flying under the radar. You know, back in my 20s or, you know, back in 2005 when I started Jomi's Creative, uh, the opportunity to work on, you know, groundbreaking experiences um, that, you know, required me to work till 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning, that was, that was fine. I was happy to do that. Like, I, I liked working on those types of things, you know, stressful as it was at times, but you know, the glory of saying, Hey, I did this and, you know, potentially winning an award or having a write up about it. Like that was, um, appealing at the time. Whereas now, you know, I want something that's a little bit more steady, uh, in terms of hours, you know, I want to be able to spend time with my family and not, you know, have to work through the night or, um, you know, Saturdays and Sundays, you know, which I still do. I mean, I don't think you can ever truly get away with that or get away from that um, when you're a freelancer. But um, it's definitely much more controllable at this point. All right. You ready for the lightning round? Sure. All right. We're getting into the, the serious stuff now. What's the best advice you've ever received? Um, in terms of, you know, business and career, I think... Learning how to say no has probably been the best advice I've received, even if I don't necessarily always take it. Obviously, when I was first getting started, you have that mindset of like, okay, in order to make this work, I need to take on anything and everything that comes my way. And looking back on it, you know, there's times where I knew a project wasn't a good fit. I knew it was going to make me miserable, but I took it anyway. And sure, you know, I, I powered through it, got it done. You know, usually they were happy. I was usually miserable, but at, at the end of the day, you know, I took those projects and basically gave away the time that, um, I could have applied to something else that maybe came up, you know, three days later. So I had to say no to the projects I wanted to work on because I was unwilling to say no to the project that, just so happened to come before it. I think that idea but, that 
opportunity is really abundant. And I think it was Richard Branson who said that if you don't like one opportunity, it's kind of like a train station. Just wait till the next one comes. It's not like you, it's not like you get one and then that's it, you know? In theory, it's a lot easier than in practice because there are times now where, you know, there might be like, you know, recently this past December was, was pretty slow. A lot of it just had to do with the holidays. You know, it's like, oh, I haven't, you know, received an email in a week or a call. Um, so, you know, what's going on? So that next call that you get, regardless of what the project is, you're going to be compelled to take it just because, you know, you haven't been billable for a week. But with experience comes that ability to say, you know, hey, this isn't a good project. I may have to wait another week, but I'd rather not work on stuff that doesn't make me happy. And to be honest, you know, uh, with the side endeavor into real estate, I feel more comfortable in doing that because I don't necessarily need to take every single project. Yeah, that's really cool. Which, uh, which personal habits has contributed most to your success? I don't know if it's necessarily a habit, but I guess I would say that I'm inherently lazy. What I mean by that is I hate to tackle tasks that aren't exciting to me. I don't know if it's like some sort of underlying ADHD, but um, what that has allowed me to do is say, okay, how can I abstract the mundane from my life? And in terms of programming, anytime I found myself doing a task over and over again, even if it was slightly different, you know, from one project to the next, I would sit back and say, how can I extrapolate this into something that, you know, is an external piece of code um, that will work for project A, B, and C with minor variations here and there. Do you have an internet resource like Evernote or another tool that you can share with our listeners? You know, nothing too exciting. Um, I rely on a pretty basic tool set. Um, I use Sublime for code editing. I use Adobe Suite pretty regularly, mostly uh, Photoshop and Illustrator. Um, pretty big fan of Google's apps, whether it's spreadsheets or um, Gmail, stuff like that. Um, and then the other programs I use are Harvest for invoicing and Basecamp for project management. Very cool. What book would you recommend and why? You know, I don't actually read a ton of books. Um, I'm more of a consumer of news. I read a lot of magazines and publications like that, a lot of topical stuff. But in terms of books, um, one book that I have on my shelf behind me, um, it's called Code Complete. It's by Steve McConnell. It's over 20 years old, but it's written in such a way that, it, again, it, it abstracts the technology um, and talks and, you know, helps you think about best practices, whether you're working in Cold Fusion or ActionScript or JavaScript or whatever it may be. But uh, early on in my career, I purchased that book, went through it, and it, it, there was definitely a lot of uh, aha moments, very enlightening. So if you're, if you're a programmer in any capacity, um, it's definitely a book that, that you'd want to take a peek at. I have that book in my office but I have to admit something right now that I've never read that book. And I'm not coding much anymore, so I think I'm okay with that. 
but I, yeah. pre- I, I I know that it is a, a well-regarded book. So it's definitely uh, it's cool that it's uh, it's so evergreen. Right. And, you know, the fact that it is over 20 years old and still relevant, you know, is kind of a testament to the author um, in terms of, you know, the fact that some things change and some things never change. Yeah. So how can our audience uh, find out more about you and where can they check out anything that you might have for them? Um, I mean, you can see some of my work at my website, which is joemeese.com. Um, you can also find me on Facebook and Twitter, but be forewarned that I use that for a lot of personal comedy and uh, political rants as well. So be uh, you know, proceed with caution. Somewhere along the lines, this is this is so such a tangent, but uh, I think somewhere along the lines, my uh, you know the suggested friends you know come up for people. Uh-huh. I think my my mother in law friended you because you know you're friends with me, you're friends with Emily, and so at some point she sure. started following your stuff. <laughs> and I have to say, every, every once in a while. It comes up at like a family gathering where my, my mother-in-law brings up. She's like, did you see what Joby's posted about this? And how funny. <laughs> I just, I'm like, what? what? At first I was like, you know, Joby's? She's like, no, I just, I just added him as a friend and he's friends with you guys. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, I definitely uh, recommend you, you, you post some funny, interesting stuff. So, uh, people should check that out. Uh, if you, you have a chance as well. So definitely. Well, Joe, always a pleasure to catch up, my friend. Uh, I think you're doing some amazing stuff. I think your journey through uh, the agency space is just so unique uh, to for you to be on both sides of ownership and team and solo and subcontract. And I feel like you've got so much experience and just running through your whole story of the last, uh, I guess, uh, 18, almost 20 years, years. almost 20 yeah. years, uh, is definitely something that you've, you've kind of seen this in industry come of age and, uh, just really appreciate the time uh, that you spend with us here on the digital agency show. Absolutely. All right. See you buddy. All right. Thanks, Brent. <laughs>